Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 213. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. How's your February going, guys? Woot woot, it is the Daytona 500 today, as I'm recording this. For you, it's already done and dusted. That's a phrase, right? Done and dusted? I don't know. But at any rate, it's over. Groundhog Day is over. Valentine's Day is over. My birthday is over. Nothing more to look forward to this year, I guess. Uh, well, leap year, right? This episode's going out on the 22nd. No, 23rd. So we're you know, less than a week from the extra day in February. There's something to look forward to. An extra day in February. Because who doesn't crave another day in the cold, gray winter months? I'm all depressed now. Might as well do this then. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's mad, Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. In Mad Mike news this week, he continues to be in hiding with the groundhog. Perhaps he goes and hibernates. The groundhog comes out on February 2nd, does his shadow thing, and then goes back uh, into hibernation. And maybe Mad Mike goes with him. I don't know. The most recent thing on MadMikeHughes.com is actually from December. The Rocketman page on Facebook continues to be all but dormant, with no updates since January 1st. Ditto on Facebook. Mad Mike does have an Instagram page, by the way. He posted one thing, which is just uh, that same artwork of a, a rendering of a flat earth being held up by a turtle that's on his website. Wouldn't it be funny if someone else came along while Mike is dormant and proved the flat earth? I mean, it'd be funny for many reasons, but one would be uh, this guy invested so much time and other people's money into building this rocket that he never got launched. And then if someone else came along and said, oh yeah, here's how you do it, and then did it. Aside from totally upending astronomy as we know it, and our conception of our place in the universe and what that place looks like, just the uh, you know the, the sick burn of Mad Mike would be fascinating. So if any of you are working on that, let me know. In the meantime, gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad In other news, by the happiest of coincidences, as I'm recording this on a Sunday, it is also Daytona 500 Day. So one of those weird things that worked out because, of course, in this episode, spoiler, we're talking about the game Indy 500. The Daytona 500 takes place at the Daytona, Daytona International Speedway in Daytona Beach, Florida. It happened, past tense for you, on February 16th at noon Central Time. It's a 500-mile NASCAR Cup Series season opener held out uh, annually at Daytona National Speedway. Considered the most prestigious and important race in NASCAR. Has opened the NASCAR season every February since 1982. I am not a racing fan, so I am not worried about missing this to, uh, to record this podcast. They don't actually overlap. I could be done in plenty of time to watch the Daytona 500. I will not be doing that, which has nothing to do with President Trump's appearance. 
as of this recording, there is a rumor, and I'm sure it is just a rumor, that Trump is going to do a lap in a, a NASCAR. I, I mean, the guy did sit in a semi-truck, I guess, but I think that was at the White House, and I don't think it actually moved. Uh, I can't imagine they're going to let the President of the United States, whoever he is, drive a, a NASCAR around a racetrack. Oh, actually, this thing says the rumor is it'll be not in a NASCAR. It'll be in the presidential limo. All right. Uh, John Roberts from Fox News says, Multiple sources tell Fox News that real Donald Trump is planning to take a lap at the uh, Daytona 500 in the Beast presidential limo ahead of the Daytona 500. It's not 100%, but that is the plan at the moment. NASCAR named Trump the Grand Marshal of the Daytona 500, marking the first time a sitting president has held that honor. He is the latest of several presidents to visit the race. I think I heard on the news this morning the last one was George W. So there you go. Maybe next week, if I remember to talk about it, I will mention uh, what happened with the uh, with, with Trump's racing appearance. There's probably a joke in here somewhere about racing around the Daytona track, being like, you know, racing, you know, the, the race for the White House or something. But I don't exactly know what the joke is. So if you have a joke, insert it here. Okay, let's move on. Oh. And for those of you who are not, who are also not racing fans, to be clear, Daytona 500 is NASCAR, which are enclosed sedan-style vehicles, whereas IndyCars have open wheels and an open cockpit. The game we're playing today, Indy 500, are IndyCars. Other than that, pretty much the same damn thing. French cars all clump together on a circular track, and they go round and round and round. All right. Gee, I wonder what game we're playing this week. Oh, here it is. This week's game is... It's Atari's new video game, more fun to play. Atari's new Indy 500 is more fun because it's so action-packed. Atari's new combat is more fun because it's most challenging. Atari's new FC battle is more fun because it's just like the real thing. Only that... From Ultra Pong to our new programmable video computer system, Atari's got more original games, and that's more fun for you. NASCAR, I mean Indy 500 from Atari 1977, the same year Star Wars came out, which has absolutely nothing to do with it. To play Indy 500, we're using the driving controllers. Stick a pin in that, we'll come back to that later. Always turn the console power switch off when inserting or removing an Atari game. They were very adamant about this in the manual. In all the racing games, use the knob at the top, the top of the controller to steer the race car in the playfield. The red button on the side of the controller is the race car accelerator. Press it and vroom! That's actually what it says in the manual, with two exclamation points. In one-player time trial games, you race against the clock, see how many laps you can make around the track in 60 seconds, race against another player. In two-player racing games, the first player to complete 25 laps wins. In games of crash and score... A player scores one point each time his race car crashes into the white square. In one-player games, a player has 60 seconds to make as many hits as possible. In two-player games, the first player to score 50 points wins. During two-player tag, trademark, it's got the little symbol and everything, games, you score one point for each second you avoid being tagged by your opponent. In all games, you lose only time, not points, when you crash into any playfield boundary or barrier. Slide the difficulty switch from B to A, and your race car travels at high speed, making it more difficult for you to control. During one-player games, you race against the clock using the left controller. The top number, the top left number on the playfield is the number of laps. The top right number is the number is the timekeeper. In two-player games, you 
obviously race against your opponent. The top two numbers represent the number of laps each player completes. The right score refers to the right controller, the left number shows the left controller. You'll hear the engines when they accelerate, and the crash when your car crashes into your opponent's car or playfield boundaries. I only played the one-player games today, with an asterisk next to that. We'll come back to that. And the engine noise is going constantly. It gets really annoying. But I guess, evidently, in the two-player game, it only uh, occurs intermittently, perhaps? Car races begin at the starting line, then get ready, get set, go. There are... Uh, 14 games, I guess. The Grand Prix track, which is basically, you know, making laps. Devil's Elbow track, with some wicked turns to master. Devil's Elbow track time trial. And then we have the Crash mm, Score games. Sort of turning racing on its head. Because in the Crash and Score games, the point is to crash. As opposed to most racing games where the point is not to crash. Uh, and we know this because the first line in this section says, Score points by crashing. Each player controls one race car with a handheld controller. The white square is your target. When it appears on the playfield, I think on my screen it actually appeared the square looked more blue than white. But anyway, when it appears on the playfield, race cars attempt to crash into it. When the crash occurs, the player scores one point and the square disappears. The square reappears at random on another part of this playfield. Hear the engine roar and the crash when your car collides with the opponent's car, which is really just a beep, which also tells you that you scored a point. Move your car off any side of the playfield and it will reappear on the opposite side. For example, steer the car off the top of the playfield and it reappears at the bottom of the playfield. Even though, like I said, I think I mentioned this in the field report, yes, that is true. You can drive off one side of the screen and appear on the other side, but on the playfield, they have specific notches you know, at the that suggests that's where you go through to get out of the top of the screen or bottom of the screen and appear at the opposite end. So that seems a little unnecessary. Hold on, I have to answer a text from my son, who just got his first cell phone yesterday. He's very excited. I will tell him that everybody says hi. Audience says hi. Okay, so there's a 50-point crash and score game, a crash and score time trial game. There's a second track, both the regular 50-point scoring game and the time trial. Then we get to the tag trademark. Once again, they don't have trademark for crash and... Wait, wait, maybe they did for crash and score. Yeah, all right. They have that uh, copyright for crash and score. They have trademark for tag. Two two persons play these games like a regular game of tag. Each player controls one car. The car that is not blinking is it. When your car is blinking, you have to take it to the dealer, and they tell you there's nothing wrong with it. It's a bad sensor. Oh, sorry, that's something else. When your car is blinking, you must avoid becoming tagged by your opponent's car, which is it. Score one point for every second you avoid the tag. When the it car tags your race car, you have to trade insurance information and, you know, take photos, and do all of that. Oh wait, that's something else again too. When the it car tags your race car, your car starts to blink. Now you are it. It must tag the blinking car. Move your car off any side of the playfield. You appear on the opposite side. We know that already. The two numbers at the top of the playfield represent each player's score. The top right score refers to the right controller player. The left number is the left controller player's score. In game 9 of tag, for example, the first player to tally up 99 points wins the game. Game 10, motor hunt track. The first player to tally up 99 points on this complicated playfield wins. It does look a bit more complicated than game 9, for example. So I guess they weren't lying. Then we have the ice race games, which has no trademark or copyright symbol next to it. So I guess it's open season, everybody. 
you can all use the term ice race, but don't you, by God, don't you use the game, the, the phrase crash and score or tag or Atari will hunt you down. Anyway, the ice race games finds your cars racing around the icy track and competing against each other or the clock. The ice makes steering on the track difficult. In two player games, players race against each other. The top two numbers represent the number of laps each player has completed. The right score refers to the right controller player. The left number shows the left controller's player's score. During one-player time trial games, the player uses the left controller to race against the clock. The top left number is the number of laps. The top right number is the timekeeper. You hear the engines when they accelerate and the crash when your car collides with the opponent's car or play field boundaries. Alright, so I guess in this one you can't go through the boundaries to the other side of the screen. You just kind of bounce off, apparently. And there are... Hmm four of those, four different versions of those, That's those, the time trials, the labs, the one player, the two player, etc, etc. And that is how you play, the hell is it called? Indy 500. Or at least that's how you would play it. Here's the deal. I put this on the schedule, I kind of looked at it a little bit, and thought, okay, I need the paddles to play this game. Well, that's only kind of true. You need the controllers that look like the paddles, but they're not. They're actually the driving controllers, which look exactly like the paddles, except the little wheel thing goes all the way around. Um, and I don't have that. I have the regular paddles. I get that when you originally bought Indy 500 back in the day, it came bundled with those controllers. But I didn't buy it back in the day. I bought it at some flea market or something, um, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, so I don't have that. So I couldn't use the paddles at all. They wouldn't do anything. I used the, uh, the straight-up CX-40 joystick, and the button would let me accelerate, but I had almost no turning ability. I could kind of get it to go to the left or right a little bit, but minimal. So mostly all I could do is accelerate around the screen. But for purposes of today's field report, I struggled through because that's how much I like you people. Also, it was too late to pick another game, so uh, that's what I did. So that may have colored my review of the game today. It's not Atari's fault. It's all on me, but, you know, there it is. There are other people who've played this game, though, and have actually actual legitimate thoughts about it. GameFacts.com, for example, really likes the variety of the games within Indy 500. He thinks that the difference in modes within the game are substantial, dramatically changing the way the game is played and is one of the reasons that the game stands out as one of the better titles for the system. There are four main modes according to this review, each being a one-on-one -on -one competition. Standard racing, get the ball, I forget its real name so that's what I call it, tag, and racing on ice. The graphics are simple and remind me of combat in a way. The two cars are small but you can still recognize them as indie cars. Audio-wise, Indy 500 gets the job done rather well for a 2600 game. The sound the engine sound changes pitch the faster you go. I didn't find that, but like I said, I had pretty limited control. The controls are, to use a commonly said phrase, easy to learn yet hard to master. I take it he must have had the proper controls for this. As far as funness, this game's a cut above the average 2600 card. A fine game, and if you find a garage sale somewhere and have an Atari 2600, I suggest you purchase it. Just make sure the driving controllers are included with the deal. Woodrain Wonderland also pretty clearly likes it. The first line in the review, let me give you an idea of how much I love Indy 500. Even though my only option for playing the game is currently on emu, uh, on emulation. Yes, I said emu, because that's how it's written. EMU. 
which means no access to the game's exclusive driving controls, I still absolutely adore it. Okay. There's something about learning to whip around the corners on these simple tracks, even with less than optimal controls, that just makes me giddy. One man's giddy is another man's annoyed, I guess. Again, it's all on me. Not Atari's fault. Lots of neat variations. Gaming simplicity at its best. Tied with Air Sea Battle is my favorite of the VCH, VCS launch titles. For the record, I intend to buy a copy of Indy 500 with the driving paddles as soon as I can make room in my budget for it. He also wants the uh, original or the uh, text label version in the gatefold packaging for the full 77 experience. Oh, update. Henry's phone, uh, the text app on his phone says hi. Videogamecritic.com also gave the game an A. Its beauty lies in its simplicity. Like wine, this classic racer seems to improve with age. Compared to most modern racers with their complicated control schemes and unpredictable handling, this game is like a breath of fresh air. Single screen tracks and a wide array of play modes. The driving controllers required, yes, I did it, are simply paddles which can be rotated continuously in any direction, and they provide pinpoint control. I remember how the game was originally packaged in a thick orange box. It was very expensive, $36, he thought. The main game variation is two-player 25-lap race with the four tracks to choose from, etc., etc. A terrific crash and score mode where both cars race to collect dots on a semi-open playfield. These guys are really making me feel bad that I didn't do my homework and get the proper controller. The game itself was based on Atari's 8-player arcade game, Indy 800. 8-player? Really? If anyone's ever played that, let me know. It was one of t uh, one of nine launch titles offered when the 2600 went on sale in September of 77. Sears Telegames later re-released re it as Race. Included with each game was a set of two driving controllers, which were identical in appearance to the 2600 pedal controllers, but could rotate indefinitely in either direction. Yes, I know. The packaging material claims it has 14 games but that number treats each of the various tracks as a game. There are actually only three unique game modes, standard racing, the crash and score, the tag. Yeah, we know all that in the, uh, the ice one. The driving controller was packed in pairs with Indy 500, but each controller has its own input, allowing only two-player simultaneous play, compared to the paddles, four. Though the controller is generically branded for driving games, other driving games, such as Night Driver, use the paddle or joystick. See? So that's what I thought, but not the driving controller. I assume that's the end of this article I'm looking at, but I assume the intent, Atari's intent, was to make more games that would use this exclusive driving controller. I don't really see the point why they couldn't just use the paddles, since everybody had the paddles, or to get them pretty easily and use them with a lot of games. Uh, I don't know. It's frustrating. I'm not going to run out and buy a set of paddles, or excuse me, a set of uh, driving controllers just to play this game, honestly. But if someone wants to give me some, you know, I'm not going to say no. I also need that special trigger thing that goes with Omega Race, because that's uh, coming up on the schedule too. The Indianapolis 500 The Race is the world's oldest currently operational automobile race, held annually at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Speedway, Indiana. That naming seems to be a bit on the nose, if you ask me. Tell over Memorial Day weekend in late May. It is contested as part of the IndyCar series, the top level of American Championship Car Racing, an open-wheel, open-cockpit formula colloquially known as IndyCar Racing. The track itself is nicknamed the Brickyard, as the racing surface was paved in brick in the fall of 1909, with a yard of brick remaining exposed at the start and finish line. The most wins for a driver was A.J. Foyt, who's won four times, Al Unser four times, and Rick Mears four times. The most wins by a team 
was uh, Penske with 18 wins. The lap record, 37.895 seconds, which is 237.498 miles per hour, by Ari Lewandik in a Raynard Ford Cosworth XB in 1996. The event billed as the greatest spectacle in racing is considered part of the Triple Crown of Motorsport, which comprises three of the most prestigious motorsports events in the world, also including the Monaco Grand Prix and the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Official attendance is not disclosed by Speedway Management, but the permanent seating capacity is upwards of 250,000, and infield patrons raised the race day attendance to approximately 300,000. The first one was held in 1911. The event was put on hiatus twice, from 1917 to 1918 due to World War I, and from 1942 to 1945 due to World War II. The event is steeped in tradition. The most noteworthy and most popular uh, traditions are the 33-car field lining up three wide for the start, the annual singing of Back Home Again in Indiana, and the Victory Lane bottle of milk. Also unique is that qualifying, and qualifying requires the driver to complete four rather than one timed laps, and qualifying itself has a separate weekend. Although the first race was won by an American driver at the wheel of an American car, European makers such as the Italian Fiat or French Peugeot companies soon developed their vehicles to try to win the event, which they did from 1912 to 1919. The 1913 event saw a change to a 450 cubic inch maximum engine size. After World War I, native drivers and manufacturers regained their dominance and uh, ushered in a history of success lasting into the mid-1970s. That tradition of singing back home again in Indiana was held most notably by actor and singer Jim Neighbors from 72 to 2014. In 2014, citing health-related reasons, he announced that that year would be his last time singing the song. Jim Neighbors, of course, was Gomer Pyle on The Andy Griffith Show and Gomer Pyle USMC. He did other stuff, too, but mostly that's what people remember. All right, this has been... Racing facts. So we screwed up on the controller for this week's game, but we still got a field report coming up. After the break, we probably crash. A lot. You know the old expression, let God take the wheel? Well, in this field report, we're about to find out what happens when God doesn't bring the wheel back. Holy crap. Alright, so I'm playing, I think, game 10. It's the one where you're supposed to drive your car into the little square on the screen. It's the crash and score, as opposed to the trying not to crash and score. Um, thing is, I don't have the driving paddles. I only have the joystick. The radio paddles don't work at all. I have a joystick, which means pretty much all I can do is accelerate. I have virtually no turning ability. Um, what I have is minimal. This is me accelerating. I hit the little dot thing. Um, the ever-present engine thrum is really annoying. So, I'm actually going to turn the TV down a little bit. Because you got the idea. The little beep you hear once in a while is me managing to steer the car into the dot. That was the end of the game. Um, the game itself... Here, I'll restart it. 
because that noise is so pleasant. The game itself, it, the look of it's fine. I mean, it's a 1970s racing game. The car is very reminiscent of every race car you see in a uh, video game from this era. The track itself is very uh, basic looking, multicolored. Uh, yeah, lots of rectangles and squares and whatnot. You see this and everything. Combat, other racing games, whatever. Um, I have zero points in case you're keeping track. Ooh, I managed to turn into the little uh, opening at the bottom of the screen and come out the top. Alright. Two points. Jealous? I'm not quite sure. There are specific openings in the border at the top of the screen and the bottom of the screen, but if you keep driving to the left or the right, as you have to do when you have virtually no turning ability, you can just drive off one end of the screen and come in on the other side. So those little openings are kind of meaningless. Um, that's about all we're going to get out of this uh, steeringless, this wheel-free driving experience. Ford take note, the steering wheel is really kind of unnecessary. You could save a lot of money um, as somebody who may be getting a new car later in the year. I'm all about saving the money. Maybe we don't need the steering wheel. Uh, I do just fine uh, without it. Alright, see you out on the road. Back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which were mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that, and for free, just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and odd thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So here's the thing about Indy 500. I can't give, really give it a fair review because I didn't have the proper controller. Having said that, it's a good looking game. It looks fun. I've liked the other racing games that I've played uh, for the Atari, both old and newer. Uh, I like the racing game on the uh, that I played for the Intellivision. You know, I, I like racing games. I, I'm not a race car fan, but I like playing the racing games on the Atari, so I have no reason to think I wouldn't like this one. If I happen to stumble on a driving controller at a yard sale for a couple bucks, I'll probably buy it, and then I'll get the true Indy 500 experience. Uh, so I'm not going to say I don't like this game or do like this game, I'm going to say I like the potential of the game. 
and someday maybe I'll discover that potential. As always, if you guys have thoughts about Indy 500 or anything else on the podcast, let me know. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled Anatomy of Vroom, a poem. The wheels on the bus go round and round. Those wings make the planes take flight. But when it comes to open-wheel cockpit cars, just what makes Indy 500 out of sight? The car's front wing and rear wing, they work together, creating aerodynamic downforce so the front and rear car work better. Two wing configurations, speedway and road, or road street course and short oval. So many options to never get old. The chassis is the central part of the car. It includes a driver's compartment. Other important stuff like anti-roll, brake cylinder, and fuel vent. The side pod covers up the oil cooler, can also benefit aerodynamics, protects engine control unit and water radiator, and keeps the driver safe from crash dramatics. The fuel cell holds 18.5 gallons, is totally made of rubber, protected from side impacts with a layer of Kevlar. IndyCars have assisted gear shifting. On the back of the wheel is the paddle shift system. The bellhouse connects the gearbox and engine with parts like rear dampers and transmission. Chevy and Honda engines are 2.2 liter. The engine houses the oil tower, exhaust system and turbocharger, surrounded by 550 to 700 horsepower. Firestone Firehawk racing radials, 11 inches in front, 15 in back. Mounted on 15 inch rims, they dissipate heat ready for the stress of the track. Front and rear, what holds them together? Wheels attached to chassis by suspension. Includes the brake discs, rear and front, built to withstand braking and acceleration. Round the track, all parts working as one. Finishing first is the goal. Never give up till the race is done. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, but make sure you burn rubber and eat some dust, which you then spew out in the form of a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bites, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. Oh, and forget, don't forget, you can now call and leave a voicemail, 563-265-1978. I'm never ever going to answer the phone, but you can leave a message about any damn thing you want, and there's a pretty good chance I'll play it on the show. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com, for all sorts of information about this show, my other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, which is a monthly deep dive into all things related to the Peanuts comic strip, 
TV, movies, merchandise, Charles Schultz, the cartoonist, um, actors, writers, playwrights, all sorts of stuff going on over there. Me talking, interviews, you name it, we do it over there. If it has anything to do with Snoopy and Charlie Brown. You're a fan, you know you're a fan, you definitely know people who are fans, you should be listening to that show, and so should they. Information about that over at TurnofLeeCreations.com. What else can you find out over there? You can find out about books that I wrote, Light Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games, and links to just some of the places that you can order those books. Also, please consider supporting the show financially by becoming a subscriber. You can do that by going to the Atari Bytes Patreon page, link in the show notes, and join up. For just a little bit of money, you can get access to shows early, you can get access to bonus material, which comes out every now and then that you don't get to hear about on this show. Lately, we've been looking at the cartoon series Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures, but you never quite know what's going to be over there in addition to the regular episode that you get every week. Also, most importantly, you help keep the lights on here at the podcast studio. You know, there's a fee for hosting the show. You know, the Lipson charges a fee. There's equipment. There's stuff like that that goes into the, uh, the weekly cost of doing a show. So anything you can do to help, uh, if nothing else, you can keep an eye on these guys who are already patrons. Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, Aerospike. Thank you guys for subscribing, but you know this is a quartet that needs to be monitored. So you guys, uh, please consider subscribing and you know keeping the peace over there at the Patreon. Oh, there are still Go Play Some Old Games They've Missed You uh, shirts and mugs over there on Zazzle.com, link in the show notes. Someday, that store will be updated with new stuff. Uh, I just don't know when that day will be. But keep an eye on this space. And that space. Next time on Atari Bytes. Golf. Yep, that's what we're doing next week. It'll be late February. Time to start thinking about spring. Getting the golf clubs out. I have golf clubs. They've been sitting in my basement for the last 20 years. It's actually a pretty nice set. I played a little bit of golf as a kid, but at some point in college I decided, dude, I don't have any money, and this is too expensive. So I kind of got out out of the habit of playing. But uh, we're going to play golf for the Atari next week. Kind of curious to see what we'll get. I've played over the years different golf games on different you know PCs and and uh, game platforms and whatnot with obviously mixed results. So I'm curious what this will be and what sort of story I'm going to make out of this. We'll find out next week. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.